Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is musician, engineer, producer, Bob Rock. Bob, good to have you. It's good to be here. I'm a big fan, Bob. You're in Hawaii, right? Yes, I'm in Maui. I live in a small place called Haiku on the North Shore of Maui. Yeah. How did you decide to move to Hawaii? Well, my wife decided to move to Hawaii, and I followed her. (laughs) (laughs) We... We, you know, um, basically what happened is uh, we knew we wanted to kind of live in the States, you know, uh, at some point in my, my life, it was best for, for us. For those who don't know, you are Canadian. Yes, but I'm a U.S. resident. I've been here 25 years, you know, so. Right. Uh, but the thing is, is, you know, my wife, she goes, you're always in the studio, but I got to deal with, in Vancouver, I got to deal with taking the kids to school in the rain. She says, I don't want to do that anymore. Let's move to Hawaii. And I said, sure, let's try it. So we tried it, built a house, and never went back, basically. It's it's a good life here. How many years have you been in Maui? Yeah, 25 years. Okay, so you ha- how many kids do you have? I have six. Okay, you have six kids. What are their ages? Oh, from, I guess, 39 to 24. Two boys and, yeah, and five girls. No, six, four girls, sorry. <laughs> and how many are with your present wife, if not all of them? Uh, four. So are any of them with you in Hawaii? Yes, uh, my last uh, daughter that's at home is Sally. And she's 24. Yeah. So what's it like in the COVID era in Hawaii? It's, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of okay. We have horses, we've got property, we've got 20 acres on another part of the island. So I basically get up in the morning, go into my studio, write a bit. And then I go to the barn and I'm just, you know, I do chores all day and I come back here. So it's not that bad. I just see the animals. We got lots of horses and goats and yeah, that's what I do. And are you seeing any people? Or are you taking the quarantining thing seriously? Uh, 
Definitely, seriously. I just turned 66. I've got Happy asthma. birthday. I had my birthday just a few days after yours. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm the 22nd. Cool. So, you know, the wife and my daughter says I can't do anything, so they do all the shopping. I'm okay with this. You know, and it's for me, I don't think I've ever had this much time off since I started my career. Seriously. Like three months, going on three months, it's like this is something else. Okay, so, but in today, you can record from different locations. Are you doing any recording or is everybody kind of locked down? Everybody's kind of locked down. I've got, uh, you know, I mean, we trade files, etc. cetera. Um, but that's not really kind of like what I do. You know, you can do that. Uh, like I said, that's not really how I approach it. But I am, I'm sitting on two albums that I've, I've finished and they were supposed to basically be out right now. One with Richie Sambora, a good friend of mine. And the other one was uh, the Offspring album. And both albums, I mean, we were done three months ago. But now they're not going to come out until next year, probably. Which is kind of, it's very strange. Well, that may change. You know, I'll discuss that uh, with Garano, But it's like, it seems like now this is going to go on a long time. And you can't go on the road. It's a good time because there aren't that many new albums out by major acts. Yeah. The thing is, is what I notice is all my friends, Dexter and like Richie and, and other people, everybody with the Bublé camp, everybody I know, we're all writing, which is kind of good, you know? Yeah, because normally you're working too hard to write. Yeah, usually you see I've got into this whole thing where I get up early before everybody gets up and I'm in the studio writing for probably a couple hours every day, you know, five o'clock in the morning, you know, that's my alone time. Okay, are you normally an early morning person? Yeah, I kind of am, you know. I, you know, rather than late at night, I'm just kind of like, I like it early in the morning. What I discovered is that uh, I'm more creative in the morning because my head hasn't gotten into the day. My head is blank when I get up, you know, so I find that's the best time to create. Uh, I'm just the opposite, but... Now, don't most, aren't most uh, musicians nocturnal? Yes, they are. So how does that, part. how does that work for your schedule? Well, you know, schedule of, ch of change. I mean, you know, when I was younger, it was, you know, it always, always ended up being noon till like whenever, like Metallica, we, we would work uh, till four in the morning, you know, and then just get up and just try and get to the studio and start again. But that was the younger days, you know. I try and keep I try and keep a limit on twelve hours now, because usually after twelve hours I'm done. That's a long time. So, how extensive is your studio in Hawaii? Well, I actually kind of have a, a full a full big SSL and Neve all the gear, but that went away with the budgets. You know, I had a lot of people coming here, and we had a great time, but. Nobody can afford to come to Maui and, and, you know, stay here, to be quite honest. So it's kind of dormant, which is kind of sad for me. But, but you know. theoretically, if someone had the money, they could do the whole album at your studio. Theoretically, yeah. You know. So you just talked about doing these albums, like with The Offspring. So you go to the act at this point? Yes, that's the thing. I go to California and I mainly go to Vancouver. I use Brian Adams studio. It's an amazing studio. And, you know, basically I came from that town. So it's really easy for me to record. It's, it's the best studio. 
I bring everybody there. They love it. And so, like, if you cut the offspring or you work with Richie Sambora, do you work continuously? And how long does that take? Well, with with both projects, those guys, they kind of, we don't really do three months at a time and just do an album, you know, because they're writers, constantly writing. So with, with Dexter, uh, I go to Huntington Beach, stay there. We usually work like two, three weeks, and then we take a break, you know. And then with Richie, it's the same thing. I go and stay at his house. Um, the thing is, is like, you know, even with the big guys who can afford it, you know, what has happened is like I put a, a, a studio, a portable studio in Richie's house. It's in his dining room and it's been there for three years. <laughs> Guess he's not eating much. No, the, the problem is, is actually the studio is right by the kitchen, which is kind of a drag because we eat all day. But uh, <laughs> as it turned out, he just loved it and it hasn't left, you know, because it's so creative, you know, you, you can do it. And then we go to the studio and we cut like, for instance, uh, Abe Laborio Jr. of Paul McCartney fame, etc. We just went into a studio for three days and did all the drum tracks, you know. So it's different now. It's uh, it's very rare that I record everything at the same time. So how do you feel and how does your wife feel about being separated for all these recording projects? Well, I think, you know, we've been together for 35 years, so she's kind of, she understands, you know, and that's, I think that's the greatest thing about my wife, Angie, is that we've always had that understanding. She gets what I did and she knew what she was getting into. So we've managed to be okay with the whole thing, but it's, um, it takes a lot to get up for me to get on a plane and go away now. Let's put it that way. It has to be special. Those guys are very, very special. At this so point. in the average year prior to this insane era, how much of the year were you outside Hawaii? Maybe for nine months. Okay. So most of the time. And yeah. these records you're producing and you're engineering yourself and you're mixing yourself, you're working with other people? No, I, um, you know, just generally what I found is that uh, I kind of oversee the how the sonics go. But I, I found, you know, when I changed to kind of more producing, you know, the first records that I did when I started producing, I did everything and I realized that my perspective was off and I couldn't do both. So I've always worked with an engineer to help me. Right now I've got a great engineer, Adam Greenholz. But, you know, I've worked with engineers when I got into producing more seriously. It's just too much work. And I said the perspective changes, you know. And who does the mixing? Well, I do the mixing and sometimes it it gets uh, put out for mixers that are hot, you know, like Chris Lord, Algae, Bob Clearmountain, et cetera, you know, and that has changed from when, you know, when I started, when I started, it was like, it was, uh, you know, we, uh, we mixed our own stuff, which is, you know, lover boy, you know, slippery when wet, everything that I did. And even the first things that I you know, even Metallica and Motley Crue, I was mixing. But then it turned into, the business turned into A&Rs and record companies always went to the same people. And so that changed. But I actually liked the old days. There was this great competition, you know. 
you know, I did, you know, I go out and buy what the record that Bob did because I want to know what he did. You know, it was always there was great competition, and the competition kind of went out of fashion in a way, kind of got boring. And are you happy with the mixes these people do? I mean, ultimately, you're happy because the record comes out, but. Do you feel that you could do just as good or a different job than the uh, usual suspects? I don't think it's better. It's just, it's a different perspective. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. One of the, one of the last records that I, that I did the whole record and uh, I was mixing it in my studio here and I thought, I wonder if I've got any, any better. So I put up Turn Me Loose or not Turn Me Loose, Working for the Weekend. Okay. And then the mix that I was doing, a band called American Bang, who turned into Cadillac 3. Okay. So I'm mixing this song and I compared them. And sonically, they sounded exactly the same. So basically, I've learned nothing. Or, <laughs> or else you got or, to ring the bell. No. Well, no, the thing is, that's my perspective. Do you follow me? That's what, the way I hear music. So to me, if people like that perspective, I usually mix. If they want a different perspective, they go to somebody else. Okay, you talked about budgets. Uh, obviously, that would mean that you're making less money, and a lot of these records don't generate as much capital as they used to. How has that changed your perspective? Uh, it's My perspective is the same. You know, I got into this for the love of of making records. I mean, that is my art form. You know, I came from a, a group and I made records and I wrote songs, etc. But to me, it's making records that I love. So I'm going to make records no matter how much I make. I just choose who I want to work with now. So I don't mind about the monetary thing. It's always nice, but, you know, I get paid well. And if I have to make a deal to do a project, if I like the project, I'll do it. Bottom line. Okay, so let's assume you're on a project and you're not living in Richie's house. You're living in a hotel. Well, in Vancouver, do you have your own place in Vancouver? Or where do you no. stay in Vancouver? Where do you stay in Vancouver? I stay in a hotel. Okay. I stay in a hotel. A lot of people don't like that life. How how do you do it? You know, the session is over. How do you keep yourself sane? Um, well, in Vancouver, it's easy because I have friends and family there. So that's easy. And I have friends in Los Angeles. Those are really the primary, the two places. And, you know, if like when I was doing Van Morrison, you know, five years back, it was great because I was in London for like a couple months. Right. And I love London. So you get to be in London. You do things. Yeah. Oh, OK. Let's go back to something you said earlier. You talked about writing. What are you personally working on in terms of writing? Well, what I do is I constantly write. That's how I write. I put together tracks. In, I guess, present terms, it would be almost like uh, rap producers put together beats or a track and usually hand it off to an artist. That's what I did. So on the new Zambora album, uh, we co-wrote basically, I think, about eight songs on the record. And I just brought tracks, which is very different, you know. Uh, but somehow we had so much fun that we just kept going. So the, the new stuff, it's like, it's him and I writing. Okay. So you go to the studio early in the morning. How long does it, do you work on a track or do you come back to a track? I mean, tracks are done. Records are done when you all feel like you've nailed it. 
So that, yeah. I'm not, I'm not actually talking about that. I'm talking about in Hawaii now, when you're working alone, starting at ground zero, you talked about your writing. I assume you're creating things out of thin air, or maybe I have that wrong. No, no, no. It's basically, and this is what amazing technology has happened. Uh, the, the technology has come uh, to make it really easy. So I work on my laptop. So I can put together a track in about an hour. You know, basically with like, I've got my own uh, drum kind of sample library, etc. So I can, so if something inspires me, I'll hear something that'll spark and I'll just play guitar, you know, and there'll be something that I take and I take that and then I develop it. And usually like I've been working on a piece of music now for two weeks and it started out as this, but it went there, which is kind of in a funny way, the way I work with artists, you know, you start with something. And you have an idea and you work with it and it goes somewhere else, you know. Conceptually, records for me, you know, you can talk about conceptions in terms of how you're going to make a record, etc. But it always comes down to the work that you put in and the hours that you spend, you know. It can either happen very quickly or it can happen over a length of time. People kind of update these days, I believe, a lot. At least that's what I do. So even like with... With the time that Richie and Dexter have had because of the virus thing, of course, they were starting to hear things that they want to change, even though we <laughs> finished the record. Because that's what musicians do. You constantly want, you think it can be better. I'm not sure that works, but the way it was was great. But now, you know, looking at it, you always think it can be a little bit better. And so you said you got an idea. Tell me about that inspiration. It can be like a beat. It can be a sound. It can be something that I've heard and went. Like, um, when I moved to Hawaii, I realized that a lot of the music stores don't have all the vintage gear that I collect. And most of the gear that I've collected through the years, it's always like a sound. Like, I have every amplifier effect and guitar that Jimmy Page has. Same with, like, Jeff Beck. Same with Eric Clapton, same with Leslie West, same with uh, Brian May, same with David Gilmore. I collected all the amps and everything. And it's kind of like, it's almost like an artist's palette, right? You know, all these colors. And that's what I do. So, yeah. So it will, it'll start with that. And I get inspired. Like, for instance, I have a collection of amplifiers and Jimmy Page is one of the biggest influences on my whole life, basically, from Led Zeppelin on, you know. And uh, so I've got a collection. I've got the actual amplifier that he used, not the amplifier, but the exact amplifier that he used on Led Zeppelin 1. And I've got the same guitar. I've got everything, right? I never nailed the sound. A month ago, I discovered on the Internet that I was missing one piece of gear, which was a two-backoplex. And I have one. So I hooked it up and I got the sound that I got the sound on good times, bad times. And I was like a little kid. I was dancing around the studio because I actually nailed it. Now, what I'm going to do with that, I have no idea. But the fact is, I, I still get excited about that. Okay. How much equipment do you have? How many guitars do you have? Uh, I don't count them, but it's over a hundred, you know, a hundred and something. I have a warehouse full of amps and keyboards, et cetera, vintage stuff. 
That's my question. Is the is the warehouse in Maui? Yeah, it's down below. Yeah. And how many amps do you think you have? Oh, I don't know. I've lost count. But I still buy them. I still buy. I still, uh, yeah. You see, when, earlier on, like when I started and I first started playing guitar, I had, my dad could only afford a, a Kent guitar and I had a Heathkit amp. So I was always like, everybody else had better gear than me. So it kind of started this thing with me. So as soon as I started making money writing songs in my band, The Paolas, I always put the money that I made by writing songs back into something. So like, for instance, one of our biggest songs uh, with The Paolas was Eyes of a Stranger. Okay. And how I got that is I read about Bob Marley using a drum machine on the Natty Dread album. I listened to it. And I found out what the drum machine. So I got a check for writing songs, bought that drum machine. That drum machine turned into the machine that I used on Eyes of a Stranger that wrote the song. So I've done that for basically almost 40 years. I keep doing it. Okay. Let's assume you wake up and you don't have an idea. Will you sit there long enough or will you just work on something you've already been working on? Um, A bit of both. Sometimes I wake up and I'm... You know, when I wake up in the morning, I, I, I kind of think of things. I'll think of a song. Now I can kind of do it in a head, changes, etc. What you do when you when you become a writer, etc., you learn that there's certain standard changes. So to me, there's so many things that basically are the same song. So it's really about a feel, a feel that I hear or something that I remember. So I'll walk into the studio with kind of like, that idea and i just try and usually what that seed takes me somewhere that i didn't you know it wasn't conceived that seed made me go somewhere else and that's when i get something i like now uh this begs the question how do you attribute songwriting credits well songwriting credits it's it's like that's (laughs) What I've done my whole life is I never, anything that I ever added to anything that I've worked on up until a couple of years ago, I never took credit because I didn't think I wanted to be in that game. So suggestions that I did as a producer, I never kind of went, well, I I need credit for that. Because I like being a, produ- a producer and I think it's a different game to be a songwriter. You know, I didn't want to be in that game. I just wanted to produce and make records. Things have changed slightly. And and I think I think I put it out there a bit more. Like I just did an album with Jan Arden up in Canada. And we just we kinda I played her a couple of tracks, she wrote songs, and we just kept going. Same thing with Richie. So we'll see how it goes. Welcome to Five Hundred Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Okay, now you talk about the reverence for Jimmy Page. And, it, and I was smiling just when you talk about that so- sound from uh, Good Times, Bad Times. Do you think these artists that have had previous peaks a decade or so previously, how would you personally try to get their head back in the game if you had an opportunity? Like if you had Jimmy Page, what would you do to try to get him to create something akin to his classic era? Not in sound, but in quality. That's uh, that's a tough one. I actually know Jimmy, you know, and we've talked and we've had, you know, and stuff. And it's really, really different when somebody like that, when you're in the presence of somebody that you revere, you know, that is a tough thing. You know, I just make him comfortable. And from what I know, I would go with what I know and, and kind of what he does and kind of make him, you know, kind of look back, but not go back. You know, as, as Bowie said, it's, you know, he's, Every album he makes is the same, but different. So it's almost like recognizing what's good about what you do. Like, I'd, I'd like to see Jimmy play the blues. I think he would make an incredible blues album like the Stones did. Because basically that was, you know, that's the seed of my whole career in my life is really the three guys, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Page. And the Truth album, the Jeff Beck album, and Led Zeppelin one I bought within... I don't know, they were released fairly soon in up in Canada. And those two albums started everything for me, my journey. And so to me, when I listened to it, like with Richie, I played the Truth album, which he wasn't familiar with. He didn't know and Truth? He, he didn't know Truth. He knew Led Zeppelin one, but he didn't know Truth. So, you know, when he heard Truth, he went, well, what the fuck? 
he did not know that. And the tones and everything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, yeah, so you can imagine, you know, like, you know, sometimes people try and make contemporary rec contemporary records, and I get that. But, like, um, like for instance, the, the Sambor album, we were just two teenagers leaning on all those guys that we love, you know, and going back. But it sounds modern. And it's just those influences. So with Jimmy, to answer the question, with Jimmy Page, I just go, Jimmy, let's start with the blues. He was like the man. He made the blues sound different. You know? Okay, I'm going to put a question you're not going to answer. Of the three, or let's put it this way, greatest rock guitarist of all time. Oh, that's... That's so mean, Bob. Um, well, I would say I would say that both Clapton and Page, because I was there actually when Metallica got uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Jimmy Page put Jeff Beck in the Hall of Fame, and he said that Jimmy Page is the best guitar player in the world. Period. And Clapton has said the same. So I would say I would go Beck because everybody I know. Beck is pretty much the guy in terms of the standard. You know, Key Scott of Brian Adams fame, etc. We went and saw Jeff Beck and you could just, we were just like teenagers. And I was sitting with Robbie Krager, two of the three of us, and we're watching Jeff Beck and we're just going like, what did he just do? Do you know, still, you know, still, he's still the guy that shocks all of us. I agree totally. You know, so people talk, I remember they had the arms concerts in 1983, the Ronnie Lane muscular uh, MS uh, shows, and the three of them were all on stage, Clapton, Beck, and that was when uh, Paige was working uh, in the firm. And Beck just blew him away. I mean, I talked to Beck once and I say, never miss a note. You know, he's some, oh, I missed a note. But it's like, Beck doesn't write the way Paige does, it doesn't produce whatever, but in terms of sheer playing, it's unbelievable. Yeah, they a big moment for both Keith Scott and I. We were both at the Queenie Theater in Vancouver when the Blow by Blow tour came through Vancouver. I saw that. And just like, well, not Keith so much, but me, I just wanted to give up because <laughs> what? I mean, what? He's like so connected. Anyway, so you, there, there's your answer. I'd pick Beck because I think Gilmore, Page, Clapton, everybody would say the same thing, along with Keith Scott. Okay, let's go back buddy. to the beginning. So you're from Vancouver? Originally born in Winnipeg. And, okay. And how many generations have your parents been in Canada, your family been in Canada? Uh, I, I would say just two. My parents' parents were, my mom's side was Icelandic. My middle name's Jens. And my father's side is Irish-English from Birmingham and uh, Belfast. On my dad's side. How'd they end up so, in Winnipeg? Um, well, they immigrated to Canada. As the Aztec, as a matter of fact, a huge Icelandic community moved to Winnipeg in the uh, after the, I guess after the First World War, they immigrated to get out of Iceland. Uh, and it's kind of a funny story because they didn't realize how cold it was in Winnipeg. It was actually colder in Winnipeg <laughs> than it was in Iceland. Anyway, but yeah. How long did you live in Winnipeg? 
till about 68. Okay, so you grew up in Winnipeg. I grew up in Winnipeg. My teen, the start of the start of my musical thing was in Winnipeg. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was the Stones on TV on Ed Sullivan and the Beatles and the Monkees. And just like that whole thing for me was great. Actually, my mom drove me to the airport with my sisters in her Volkswagen and we saw the Beatles get off the plane going to New York on their first tour. They came out and waved. She drove us to the airport because her, her girlfriend worked at Air Canada. So we went and we saw the Beatles waving. That, that's like astounding. Meanwhile, that's quite a supportive mother. My mother wouldn't have driven me to Kennedy Airport or Idlewild, as it was called. Yeah, no, she was, she was into it. She was into it. I told that to Paul, too. He thought it was funny. Did he remember waving in Winnipeg? He remembers getting off the plane because that was that was where they landed. They had to stop there for fuel, right, to get right. on to New York. They couldn't get to New York. They went over the pole, right? So they stopped in Winnipeg. So he remembers getting off the plane. He didn't remember me, though. <laughs> <laughs> so what did your father do for a living in Winnipeg? He was an insurance salesman in the insurance business. And your mother... Homemaker or worked outside the homemaker. home? Yeah, homemaker. Yeah, homemaker. How many kids in the family? I have two sisters. And where are you in the hierarchy? I'm middle. I have an older sister. Really? But that's just like me. Actually, I'm the yeah. middle, whatever. So, okay, how do you uh, discover music? Well, it had a lot to do with my older sister, Sue. You know, she actually saw... The Stones in Winnipeg with Brian Jones. If you, can you imagine? No, I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah, she saw them there, yeah. So it was funny because she brought music in, you know, and she liked the Beatles, so I immediately liked the Stones, right? Because I had to be different. They Animals and Dave Clark Five, and she loved the Beatles. Anyway, so she brought music in there, and then my dad actually got me guitar lessons. Uh, and that started my journey. And of course, the guests who were on TV, I was telling this to, not to drop names, but Van Morrison, because he asked me the same thing, where are you from? And I was saying, I was saying that the guests who were big rock stars to me because they played all the hits every week on a TV show. Like they would just recreate the hits, right? And so they were so big to me, you know, the guess who. Okay, did you want guitar lessons because you saw the Beatles on TV or did it predate that or what was the inspiration? Good. Guitar lessons were, basically, it was Keith Richards. Make no mistake. I, I singled him out right away. You know, when I saw him, I went, I don't know what's going on there, but I like it. So I've always wanted to be that, you know. Well, his sounds are not that easy to figure out either, the way he does the tunings, etc., no, but when you know, you know, when you know it, it's it's something else. And what's so great about it, it's signature. Nobody can put that on a record without going, that's Keith Richards' thing, right? That's an amazing thing. That It's so signature, his thing. Yeah. I try it so, all the time, and it never works. <laughs> okay, so you're taking guitar lessons. You start with an electric guitar or an acoustic? Uh, I had a an acoustic at first, but I, I went to electric right away. I wanted to know how to play an electric guitar. I wanted it to be loud, you know, 
And that's, you know, once it, right in the beginning though, I was always into the sounds, you know, of those records. That's, that's what is the, is kind of that whole line for me. It's always about the sonics. And why does that sound like that? Like, uh, and so electric guitar is where I went. Um, yeah. The big point for me was uh, actually we moved to uh, Victoria out on the West Coast in, I guess, 68. Okay. So I left school and I left all my friends in Winnipeg and that whole scene and moved out to Victoria. Knew nobody. Right. I was playing hockey, blah, blah, blah. There was kind of no hockey out there. You had to pay to play hockey. So hockey went. So I was alone and I didn't have friends for like a couple of years. It was really tough. It was a tough move. You know, I hated my dad for it, but it ended up being the best thing that ever happened because all I did was play guitar and listen to records. You know, that's a great lesson that some of those things that hurt so much end up being the thing that changes your life. And that changed my life as I've come to realize. That begs the question, did you have a lot of records? Did you have a good stereo? I wouldn't say it was a good stereo, but we had a stereo in the house, you know, because my parents loved music, you know, and my sister had it. So we bought as many records. I bought singles, of course. Everybody bought singles, right? You know, because that's all you could really afford. Albums were kind of like a little bit more money, you know, had lots of singles. So when did you form your first band? In Victoria, we were kind of like a Doors cover band because we couldn't play Led Zeppelin. Doors was, was a little easier, except for the solos. <laughs> and how did that come together? Are you like the business guy or how did you find the other members in the band? Well, we were all guys in school together. You know, so we, we, we were called The Wine, which is a horrible, horrible, with a Y. It was just a horrible name. Um, but anyway, um, you know, when we started, we played the, 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 the sock hops in school and did covers and we started getting blues and stuff. Yeah. So I had many bands and really until I moved in Victoria to another place in Langford, uh, that's when I met the guy that I really started to hit it off with a guy named Paul Hyde. And it was like grade 10 and he was from England. So to me, that was a guy that, you know, I had to know. He showed up at the bus stop. He had his head shaved and I thought he was a skinhead. So I thought, this guy I got to meet. We ended up meeting and oddly enough, we just had the same love of English blues and English music and just music. And that's when really it connected. And we had a band and we had a blues band because blues was, uh, was a big thing in Victoria. So... So were you, how long did you take lessons for, or are you uh, self-taught? Well, I took lessons to learn how to play, and then it was self-taught. And Can you I didn't have a, I just listened to records, you know. Can you yeah. read music today? No. Okay. No. So you get together with Paul Hyde. At what point do you say, this is what I want to do as a career, if you even say that? Well... We kind of decided, uh, the, the thing was, I went to England when I was 18, as soon as I finished school. Paul and I, and the drummer that we had, Billy, we went to England to be rock stars. We saved money working in restaurants. I had a guitar, we went to England. And we lasted six months. 
okay, um, and came back. Uh, uh, but we were, uh, I knew it. Like the last, the last year of school, basically, uh, you, I don't think I went. As a matter of fact, I know I didn't went, go, I should say. All I did was go to Paul's house and we just play music. So I knew what I was supposed to do. And your parents were cool with this? No, they weren't. Not so, <laughs> whatsoever. My dad particularly. Yeah. The greatest thing, though, that happened, I actually graduated. I had a graduation. Okay? This is the greatest thing in Canada, is that you don't get your marks until after you graduate. So everybody goes through the graduation. So I went through graduation, didn't get a diploma. My dad, till the day he died, said, did you get your marks yet, Bob? <laughs> I never got <laughs> He knew, right? <laughs> but yeah, anyway. So he he wasn't keen on the musical thing, but there you go. So you come back from England, and where's the act then? Well, what happened is I ended up getting jobs working in mills, slaughterhouses, cardboard box factory, doing all sorts of stuff and playing music. But I ended up hearing this advertisement on the radio. Uh, and saying that there was this course offered in Vancouver for six weeks, one, you know, Saturday for six weeks. Uh, and I asked my parents if they would give me the money to do it. So it was basically, I went over to Vancouver six Saturdays in a row and I learned basic engineering. Okay. And because of that, what happened there, um, the guy that was teaching the course uh, offered me a job at Little Mountain. You know, I was the guy. Uh, wait, wait. How many kids were in the class and how come you got the job? Well, I'll tell you why I got the job. I was the only one that wasn't scared to make a mistake. Every time he said, who wants to try? And it was always, I'll do it. Even though I didn't know what I was doing, but I got the job because I was the only guy that would say, I don't care what if I make a mistake, I just want to do it. That's why I got my job, which started my entire career. So it's a very good lesson. Just put yourself out there. Okay, so you immediately move to Vancouver and you start working at Little Mountain, I suppose. And where does that where does that leave you as a player with Paul Hyde? Well, he went off, he stayed in England and moved to Toronto. And then he ended up in Vancouver when I started at Little Mountain. And right then, punk music came, happened, okay, in the late 70s. I started at Little Mountain in 76, okay? And about 77, 78, we started, uh, we were playing and stuff, but then when punk broke, um, and it's kind of an interesting thing looking back at it. What happened is looking back at it when I look back, and the, 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 the punk documentary that, Varvedos and Iggy Pop did was is an excellent documentary and it shows exactly kind of what happened a lot of people in that scene we weren't allowed to be playing clubs and stuff because we weren't that good right but all of a sudden with punk we could play clubs right because we only knew three chords and played fast and loud and actually we could make records well I worked at a studio so Paul and I started to write songs and that how we learned how to, I learned how to put it together. Okay. 
So that was punk music gave us that foot in the door. We didn't want, we weren't into anarchy or anything. We just wanted to make records. And punk music allowed us to learn how to make records. So the first song we wrote, China Boys, we put it out, a thousand copies. We got signed to IRS Records on one song. We got signed on the first song we wrote. I'm not kidding you. Okay, how did that happen? Well, this guy, somebody, because we sold the thousand and it, it became kind of a hit in the Vancouver scene. And then everybody heard it in Toronto. So A&M, this guy, Michael Gaudin, he signed us for an EP. And he said, do you have any more songs? And we said, yeah, we got lots. We had nothing. As soon as we left the meeting, we wrote songs. We wrote four more songs. We put out an EP. And that did kind of okay in Canada. And so we got an album deal with, with IRS, Jay Boberg. Uh, he signed us and R.E.M. at the same time. Same week. He signed us. It was then called the Payolas. Yes. Worst name so, ever. So what's the story of the name? Well, we thought it, it, we thought it was really kind of funny poking at the, uh, the payola scandal, right? We thought that was very punk, right? There was this famous uh, radio guy, Charlie Minor. You probably heard of him, right? And he I, said I to us, Charlie. he says, yeah, and I, we know him really well. And he said to us one day, he says, you know, guys, I love your music, but your name, I can never do anything to help you because that <laughs> is just an insult to what I do. Let's go have some dinner. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> And he says, that dollar sign at the end is such an insult. Anyway. I saw him two but. days before he was shot. It was very weird. But, uh, okay, you have the payolos. What do you do for the rest of the band? Oh, we just find players. We made our first album. We actually asked, uh, we're big fan Bowie fans, and Mick Ronson was the guy that we wanted to produce our first record. We sent him all the demos, and we didn't hear back. So I ended up just doing it myself, which was a big mistake, you know. But what was great is Mick Ronson phoned back nine months later and says, I really like your demos. There was actually <laughs> the demos for the first album. And we had already started writing for the second album. So he actually came to Vancouver and he produced our second Good album. Good experience or bad experience? With Ronson? Yeah. Oh, Mick Ronson is the biggest influence on my production and as a musician period you know working with him changed everything he was such he did two albums with us i actually toured with us but i'll tell you the the best thing i can tell you of mick ron's story is so eyes of a stranger i told you about buying the drum machine blah blah blah, blah. and i actually recorded the whole track as a demo so he comes in and he listens to all the song and he's saying okay we got to do this oh this is great I play him the track of Eyes of a Stranger with Paul with a ripe vocal. He goes, we're not going to get better than that, so let's keep that track. I'm just going to overdub some keyboards. In other words, he just he didn't have to re-record it. He just said, that's great. So we did an edit to fix it. He put keyboards on it. I mixed it at the power station, and it's our biggest song. That taught me a lesson. It's like he didn't have to change anything. He heard that it was good by itself. And that, a lot of people don't do that. Most people would just go like, well, we got to re record it. He went, no, that's great. That's just a simple story about him. I could tell you, we could talk for hours about him. Well, give me one more story. 
Well, he he taught us. He taught us like there was a couple songs where, you know, he would say, "This is a great song, but let's see if we can find the home for the song." And we're going like, "What do you mean the home?" In other words, he heard the song, but it wasn't done the right way. So we had this great song. I was really into "Darkness on the Edge of Town," the Springsteen song. So I basically mimic kind of that feel. And he said, "It's a little kind of hard." And he said the lyric isn't like that, so he ended up playing a piano part, and we did this. It's called Hastings Street. It's about the Skid Row in Vancouver, and he changed it, and it went to a place that is beautiful, and it's an incredible song and a credible track. So he taught that to us that no matter what you do, and I still believe this is whatever you need, inspiration-wise, to write a song, write it, and then you find the home. A lot of people get stuck where they write that demo and it's precious. They don't want to change it. But sometimes there's a song there, but it's just not done right. So he he showed me that. But the greatest thing I'll tell you, we we did a tour after the second album we did with them, and we didn't have a keyboard player, and we had a tour to open up for Split Ends in Canada, the whole Canadian tour. Um, and he says, "Well, I'll play keyboards for you." And so he came on the whole tour with us. And the first night we were playing in Victoria and Soundcheck and Split Ends were on the side of the stage and they're going like, is that Mick Wilson? (laughs) (laughs) So he was, yeah, he did the whole tour with us. That's the kind of guy he was. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. 
if safe to do so. Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Okay, that begs a question. I mean, everything's changed today, but prior to this decimation of recording royalties and budgets, are you the type of guy, you know, the Stones legendarily wrote in the studio. So you're the kind of producer where you want the material first or you want to work in pre-production or every act is different. I think every act is different. You know, the the whole thing of writing in the studio, uh, it's a luxury, always has been a luxury. You know, the best thing, you know, like for instance, it was uh, everything I've done, I learned because of Bruce Fairburn and because of, you know, how he worked. I learned the fact that you do pre-production. Pre-production is key, no matter what. All the all the album albums that I've done has always been that, or there's a demo to go from. Some people do demos, and then you can just go from there. But for the most part, you always want to do pre-production before you go into the studio. And what does your pre-production look like? Well, it it's changed because everybody, like I said, now on computers, people are kind of making demos. You know, so... You can really just work with the demo and go from there. Uh, but, you know, you just, you talk, you, you, for instance, it's like with bands in particular, you know, and it was like with Metallica, they, they never played in the same room when they made a record. So to me, I said, well, but that's how I make records. And I explained to him, I said, well, that's because you never know if you change the beat in the, in the verse or something. You can't change it later, you know. So you gotta get a, you gotta get a, a kind of like, a, you gotta get an idea of what's going on. And you know, the the tempo means so much difference, it makes so much difference. Like one beat to find the pocket where you know, like the Black album is a pocket album. All the feels are like we worked on it to find the right tempo, and we stayed there, you know. So that that was it, and. Um, so we spent time, and that's that's the difference. You go in when you know you've got it in shape. You've got the arrangement right, and you've looked at what the bass is doing with the kick. You just go through everything. And you do that in a room, and you can just make a cassette with one microphone. And that's fine to kind of work until you get into the studio. So that's what we did. You know? And I do that. How much pre-production did you do for the Black Album? I was probably there for two weeks, you know, and we went through every song and, you know, they were warming up to me and me warming up to them. You know, I think the first time we had lunch, I was in one room and they were in the other room <laughs> type thing. By the end, we were all in the same room. They were, you know, you know, with a band like that, they were so intense, you know, and they were so, they had that club, the Metallica club that they were in. It was hard to get into the club. It took a long time. And how long you know? did it take to actually record the record? 14, 15 months. And how did you yeah. get the gig? They wanted me to mix the record because they they really liked the sound of the Motley album. They didn't like Motley, but they loved the Dr. Feelgood album, the Sonically. 
And they, so they came up to see me in Vancouver and they brought cassettes of the, the songs and they played, you know, they played the material and it did not sound like the Justice album, which I knew. And actually, just you, so you know that, uh, that just before that, I saw Metallica because uh, Sonic Temple, I did the Sonic Temple album and the cult warmed up on this uh, Justice tour. So I stayed and watched Metallica and I went, their records don't sound anything like they sound live. They were so big and powerful. So I, I made a mental note. Anyway, they, they said they loved the sound of the bigness and the weight of the, the Motley Crue album. So they came up to Vancouver, had a meeting. And when I heard the songs, it's like, you know, Sad But True was, to me, was like the levee breaks. It had that feel. It was there. Sandman was there. All the feels were there. Um, and so basically we started talking and a couple of things happened that were pretty funny. Uh, we had dinner that night and I could see that they were looking at the busboy that was looking at the table, right? And he finally came over and he said, excuse me, is, are you Bob Rock? Can I get my auto, your autograph? They didn't <laughs> ask them for the autograph. And they, they thought that was hilarious. They thought that was hilarious. So that was breaking the ice. They had no idea. The guy had no idea who they were, right? But because of the payolas, it was it was pretty funny. So there was the moments that basically we just talked about music and then I didn't hear from them. And all of a sudden they said, come on and let's get going. There you go. Did you have any idea the album would be an inner Sandman would be as big as they ultimately were? No. No, not at all. When I said conceptualizing albums, I mean, really, the thing is, is what we, we decided is like, because, you know, the basic tracks in the fields were there. A lot of people think I changed that, and I didn't. It was always there. If you listen to the demos that have been released, the songs are there. But what I did is I changed basically the approach of how to record, okay? So, um you know, it took a while to get to get going, and then it just became work, which is like we we decided that we weren't going to compromise in any way, shape, or form on anything. So the drum sound took three weeks. You know, the bass sound, the James's guitar, we built a room specially for to get the sound that you know I couldn't figure out. We built a room to have this certain resonance, which is part of the sound. Everything was, there was no compromise on what they wanted. And I was there as the guy that kind of went, well, I know how to sort of do this. Let's work together and do it. So that's, I was the guy that kind of like helped them learn how to record what they wanted because of the experience that I had. So, you know, uh, that's why it took long. And that's, that's what we did. So in the end, we were so tired of each other that we said, <laughs> we went and had a bottle of wine after Randy Staub and James and Lars, we finished mastering. And we we're just like, it's been fun. Don't call me. Never want to see you again. And we all walked our separate ways, you know? And all of a sudden I was uh, playing, my band was playing at Club Soda in Vancouver and it came on. I went, wow, people kind of like this. Who knew? Okay, so how did uh, Paola's morph into Rock and Hide? 
Well, we did a, a record that wasn't us, that the record company made us use a producer that we really didn't want to use. I'm not going to name names, but, and it kind of ruined the band. And so Paul and I, who basically wrote all the songs and did it pretty much everything, we reformed it and we got signed to EMI in England for Rock and Hide. So it just became the two of us. Yeah. And we kind of used some of the guys in the Palos as the band. Yeah. So tell me about morphing from being a player to being a studio guy. The thing with the Palos and my career as a writer and a guitar player kind of were was pa running parallel with learning how to make records. So, and what I realized, and, and it, just to go back, with all the guys that I love, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Page, I could never play like them. So I found this guy that wasn't like that, him, and his name was Pete Townsend. And Pete Townsend was a songwriter, and he played rhythm guitar that I just got shivers talking about it because I've met and I told him that changed everything for me because I realized I didn't have to be a shit hot lead player. I just had to play rhythm like Pete Townsend. Okay. So that was the guy that made me decide that I was more about the record and writing and sounds and being Pete Townsend and Keith Richards, who was one of the greatest rhythm players as well. Okay. Does great lead work. So does Pete Townsend, but they're, you know what I mean? So that was the absolutely for me. Pete was in my brain when you were talking about it. It was so funny. You mentioned it. Yeah, no, that is seeing, and you know, like the who were just so big for me as well. Cause that's, you know, it ended up, you know, we started with, I can see for miles and just like my generation and stuff. And I had dinner with shell tell me, by the way, that's something know. I haven't done. No, it was, I had dinner with him after I did a thing at South by Southwest, a panel. I only went because he was on the panel. And, and so I, I kind of met him over the video or whatever, but this guy, Mike Jacobs set it up and I had dinner with him. I just like, I was in heaven talking about the who he had just an amazing guy. Anyway. So the who, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, what did he tell you about making those records? Well, he, you know, he, he said how he got the gig, you know, and he said he was an, as he was an engineer in LA, he's American. He went to England on holiday and he just went, he had a friend at Decca Records in London. And he, and he said he was just hanging around the Decca office and this guy came in with an acetate, Ray Davies. And he had an acetate, which is basically a demo and nobody wanted to hear it. So he said, I'll listen to it. He listened to it and he says, I want to record you. That's how he got the kinks gig. By being there. Just <laughs> by luck. He recorded that. Pete Townsend heard, you know, you really got me. I want Shell Tell Me. And <laughs> Shell Tell Me changed the way the Who recorder because Shell being American, he used multiple mics. Okay. And most of the English engineers were using just three or four mics on drums. Shell Tommy set up all these mics with Keith Moon and on the guitar, and they were in heaven, and that's my generation. And I'm going like, I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm sure you were. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, it, we just had the greatest time talking about, you know, because his career just lasted to, I think, Waterloo Sunset with the Kinks or whatever, and then they moved on. But his career and what he did for kind of rock music is just unbelievable, the impact he had with that kind of recording, etc. All on the fact that he went to England for a vacation. He stayed in London. An American guy. So going yeah. back to your career, how do you decide to go get off the stage and switch sides in the studio? Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen managed the Paolas. And and Bruce says, because I was the engineer with Loverboy and Prism, I've, I knew Bruce like, as a matter of fact, the day I got my job at Little Mountain, I was sitting in the waiting room. And all of a sudden, the door is December 16th, 1976. The door swung open. And this guy with a full-length fur coat opened the door and just like walked by me. And BTO were in the studio. And I went to the reception. Who's that? And she said, that's Bruce Allen. And I went, oh, and it never, that guy ended up managing me. And he's my closest friend to this day. 76, that's over 40 years, Bruce Allen's been in my life. But Bruce told me, I did a Rock and Hyde gig at the tour, and he said, Rock, he says, you got to stop doing this, okay? You're a producer. You're a, you're a producer. You got to be a producer. Let me manage you as a producer. And he says, I'm not going to tell him, <laughs> tell you what he said. Yes, I will tell you, he said. He says, you got to lose the dumb brats, and you got to just listen to me. And you're going to make some money. And actually, the thing he that he did, the first thing he did, I had met my wife just after that, Angie. So I lost the dumb broads and got a great woman. She, actually, she got me, but... <laughs> uh, and then Bruce, um, with Slippery When Wet, um, Bruce Febron had a deal. He said, just before that, we'd done hum Honeymoon Suite. He says, the next record, you're going to get a point on the record. The next record was Slippery. He didn't give me the point. <laughs> okay? Okay? The next, so the next record I did was Aerosmith, Permanent Vacation. And I was making for Slippery, I made 10,000 Canadian, which is American engineers were getting 20,000 American. Okay? So on on. Permanent vacation, Bruce Fairburn says, we can't afford to give you 10000 We can only give you eight. And then I went, this is not going to be my future. Okay? So after that, I went on tour. I left the permanent, I didn't mix the permanent vacation record. I was on tour with Rock and Hyde. I had to go on tour. And at the end of that tour, Bruce says, I told you the story. The next record I got to, Jamba Jovi wanted the, Bruce Fairburn and I to do the New Jersey record. Bruce Allen said, Rock ain't doing it. John says, but I really want Rock to do it. Bruce got me paid the New Jersey album on one point on 10 million records, 10 million records, cash. Angie and I bought our first house. That's Bruce Allen. Okay? I don't know if you can say all that, but... That is Bruce Allen. He changed my life. And he's the guy that said, be a producer. That's what you're good at. And, okay, you know, the rest is history. He's the reason why, 
you know, Metallica, you know, we had, we made the decision. He helped put that together. You know, he's like, like I said, my best friend and, uh, yeah, huge. Okay. Okay. So, but you talked at some point playing uh, club soda. When did you literally stop playing with a band or is that really never died? After Rock and Hide, I had, while I was doing the Black Album, I actually did a rock album, Rockhead. And it was because, I, just because I was in L.A. a lot and I started writing music. And for whatever reason, I want to make a rock album. I didn't want to be like a new wave guy. So I made a rock album and I was, you know, so I made a rock album. And so I ended up uh, touring Europe. We opened up for Bon Jovi. Okay, did European tour. And I realized then that I should just produce. I just couldn't deal with that anymore. I couldn't deal with, because, you know, it was like, uh, you know, all the press, all they wanted to talk about was Metallica because the Black Album came out, right? And I went, this is, this is just not me. So I ended up making records, which I love doing. So there you go. And so what did you learn from uh, Bruce Fairburn? I learned... Bruce is really the, the, his pluses were, uh, it took me a while to learn his greatest thing was like, he didn't really, he was never a fan of bands. Like, in other words, he didn't really, like to me, Aerosmith walked in the room and, and it was like, I was a fan. I mean, I was like, Joe Perry, Steven Tyler, they're in front of me. I'm in the studio, they're in front of me. And it meant nothing to Bruce. They were just a band. So he could say, like, we were in the middle of a take, and he always went for dinner at 5 o'clock. If we were in the middle of a take, he'd say, I'm going for dinner. He'd leave. And so the, he had control with those guys, okay? He had ultimate control with over Stephen and Joe and the band, okay? That kind of thing. In other words, his scheduling was amazing, and he made them work, and he made them work hard. That's what he was great. And he had this outside because he wasn't, he did his homework on Aerosmith and he brought the best parts to the the project, much like Bon Jovi, you know? He recognized what we had this way of working, the two of us. And, and so he taught me a lot. What he taught me is, as he actually gave me my first job, besides the job at the studio, the first guy to believe in me was Bruce Fairburn. He asked me to do the Prism album. And he asked me because he wanted to change up and he had heard this, the kind of the punk stuff that I had done. And it was raw. So he hired me. So he gave me a shot. He kind of started my career. Anyway. Okay. Was he managed by Bruce? In the end, but he, he was, Prism was managed by Bruce. Bruce Fairburn was in Prism. And Jim Valance was in Prism in, in an earlier band that turned into Prism. So that's why they wrote the songs in the Prism album. So it's all tied in. Well, I guess what I'm asking is, if Bruce managed Bruce and you, how come you couldn't get the point? Uh, he wasn't managing Bruce at the time. I see. He managed Bruce later. Okay. So... Uh, do you know Slippery When Wet is going to be Slippery When Wet? What do you mean? When did we know? I mean, you're making that record, an iconic record. 
by far the best Bon Jovi record, you know, Wanted Dead or Alive. First time I heard that, never mind, Living on a Prayer, and You Give Love a Bad Name. Did you say, holy fuck, we have something here? Fabron and I, at the end of that, we finished the band just left, and we were in the control room, and we're kind of going like, hopefully this is going to go gold so we get another gig. <laughs> and we knew, and we thought Living on a Prayer was probably... You never want to say there's this thing. You never want to say that's a hit because it always seems to you know, never go that way. But we knew Living on a Prayer was really strong, but we had no idea. I mean, that went, that was triple platinum in like three months. We had no idea. So let's say uh, you realize you have an 11 in a song, whatever. If you realize that, whether it be in pre-production or recording, does that steer it away from being 11? What I mean is, you know, do you become so self-conscious that you can't nail it then? No, no, not, not really, because this is the, the beauty of Bruce Fairburn. We, that was a six-week album, okay? That was, there's only one guitar track, one keyboard track, all cut live. I, I mixed it in a week. The whole record, you know, and it was like, so there was no time to even think about it. You, you're just, I was just doing my job. I was learning. You see, this is the whole thing all through that we've talked about. And there's, there's more. I'm still learning, Bob. I'm still being schooled. Van Morrison schooled me to death. You know, when I worked with him, you know, constantly I'm learning. And through all of that, I was learning. So I never, ever thought that it was 11 and I'm scared to do it. I was just trying to do the best job okay, I could. Okay, but I was really referring to now when you are the producer. Oh. Uh, so what do you mean? So looking back I mean, at that? I'll give you an example from my own life. If I'm writing something and I realize yeah. it's incredible, it's just something fires in my brain, then it ends up not being incredible because I'm self-conscious. Now, the nature of writing, the way I do it, you write it, it's done. A song is a whole thing. You usually have pre-production, et cetera. So do you ever, when something is really phenomenal, you don't want to fuck it up, but are you so self-conscious that it's hard to get it right? Well, as a producer, the thing, the thing is, is here's, I think, what I learned from Bruce Fairburn and just making records for a long time is I don't stop trying to make something great until the artist says, until the artist is happy, not even the record company. If the artist says, this is the best I can be. And I say, this is the best I can be. It's done. And I'm okay with it. I mean, I can listen to every record I've done and I know all the flaws. I even know all the punches for on Slippery that I made. I can still hear the punches. I hear all the flaws. But now I listen to it as a whole, and I'm going like, as a whole, it's great. You can always, like, it's that thing, as I was telling about Dexter and Richie with the time off. They're listening. We can change this. You always think you can do better. But realistically, it ends up being what I said when I said I compared my mix to uh, working for a weekend. I'm that guy, and this is the way it's going to end up sounding. Okay, different band, different kind of species, whatever, uh, different people, but it always ends up sounding the way I hear it. When it when I go like this sounds great, 
and the artist says, this sounds great, we're done. I'm okay with it, whatever happens. Okay, how does the Black Album change your life? Well, I live in Hawaii. <laughs> okay, but in terms of offers and things like that? Well, I mean, I got a lot of offers, but I, I kind of went, you see, because I'm a rock guy. I'm not a heavy metal guy, you know? And that's what I think, you know, the perspective, like, in other words, if I was a fan of Metallica and I was a metal guy, it wouldn't have been the same. Okay. So I got lots of offers. There was a couple of things and stuff, but when you do the best and the biggest, where do you go? Do you know what I mean? That's the way I looked at it. Like who's, and besides they were demanding and I spent 15 years of my life working with Metallica. So it wasn't like I needed more work. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you think about right, load right, right. was like, if you think about like all the stuff that we did for 15 years, I, you know, I just did an album a year or two as well. As a matter of fact, it got a little worrisome that I wasn't doing anything, you know, outside of them, you know, which is why, it, you know, the relationships kind of end. I had to move on and do something. I just didn't want to say, set up the same set of drums. You know what I mean? It gets kind of old. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to move on. Let's go back to Loverboy. The sound on Turn Me Loose, that whole record, is just unbelievable. What do you remember about that experience? It was big. Like, Loverboy were the best band in Vancouver. And when we came to do the album, I mean, Paul Deaton, the guitar player, busted my balls constantly about Sonics. But I learned so much about, because he walked in and he had the guitar that he put together himself. He had this amplifier, this is his speaker, this is my sound, record it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Nobody before that had ever had that. Like, this is my sound, just like Brian May has a sound, Jimmy Page has a sound. You know what I mean? He was the first guy that really ever put that in my head. And he had ideas um, about how to do that. So he pushed me. And everything I've done, Bob, is because the people like the sound of the drums on Motley Crue the sounds on Metallica, those guys push me. And when everything I've done that's good is when guys push me. They make me out of, get me out of my comfortable zone and make me work. Paul Dean made me work. And a funny thing, really funny about Turn Me Loose, right? So Turn Me Loose, he, he kept referring to the Pat Benatar album that Mike Chapman had done, right? Going like, we got to sound like this, we got to sound like that, you know? And I'm just doing my best to get it sound as great as as I possibly could. And um, years later, I did a, a, this band called Spider, okay? And Anton Fig was in the band, okay? And he, uh, he was working with Mike Chapman. And the band, when they recorded, they had the first Loverboy album and they were busting the engineer's balls to sound <laughs> like... <laughs> so that's what I mean about that time, like the competition thing. It's like... I was trying to get what they were doing and they were trying to get what I'd done. It's kind of funny. How'd you get the gig with Motley Crue? Basically Doc McGee. It was the, the records that I had done, like the uh, Kingdom Come album, the Sonic Temple album, 
the bands heard that and kind of and Doc McGee said, you know, working with Bon Jovi, you know, he just said, you should have a meeting. So I took a meeting and when I took a meeting with them, I was at Tommy's house and they were all sober, you know? Right. And this, that's, that was my Motley Crue thing. And, you know, and I basically did what I said. We did pre-production and we worked hard at pre-production. And then we went to Vancouver. I said, I recorded at Little Mountain and they knew about Little Mountain. So we didn't have a problem there. And we just worked hard and I had a sober band till the end. Well, you know, it was a huge step forward for them. So you keep mentioning Van Morrison. How'd you get that gig and what was that experience like? He did a duets album and Michael Bublé, he asked Michael to do a duet with him. So he did Real Real Gone and we did a track. We recorded his band in Birmingham live. So uh, I recorded Michael and I had to go record Van's vocal. So I went to his session. He was already working on the duets thing. And I spent the day, and oddly enough, I didn't record Van's vocal because they did this trick. They said, Bob, why don't you go for lunch? Van will be here in, in an hour. Well, I left. Van came in, sang the vocal, and I got back, and they already done it. Anyway, I ended up spending the day, and we talked. And then he heard the mix that I did. So he phoned me, and he said, would you come to England and mix the rest of the record? And I went, yeah. And he ended up, I ended up doing a, a song with George Benson. We cut a song, I pr produced it with Van, and I mixed the whole record. And I mean, recording the, the song that I did with George Benson and him, he schooled me like he's a first take guy, right? And if, you know, he won't do a second take. So we did the track, George Benson didn't know the lyrics, so I said, Van, you know, George sang, but he, was, he wasn't singing the lyrics and stuff. And I said, we got to do another one. He says, nah, we can't do one. I said, but, you know, what are we going to do? I said, we should do one. He says, okay, I'll do one. So we did one. And it sounded great, and George sounded great. And Van said, uh-uh, first one. So I had to repair George, right? And he was right, because the first take was magic. And it was kind of like, you know, just seeing him and, and just... Like he's so on. And I had some great moments I got to tell you about after that. Um, so we did that song and we mixed it. I mixed the whole record. And he invited me to go to Mont Montserrat, uh, no, Montreux for the jazz festival because he wanted to cut a song with Dr. John. So he flies me from here to Montreux. We're at the jazz festival. So actually, I forget the song that we're doing, but. So we, I go to the studio, I set everything up, and it's Dr. John's band because that's how the duets thing. It's whoever the artist is, it's their band, they do the arrangement. So we get there, I meet Dr. John, which is a thrill. I'm there, I get there early, he's there, I get to meet him. He was just like, it was surreal. So we get there, and his, uh, Dr. John's arranger wrote a really complicated horn section chart, Okay. For, for actually Van's horn guys, because they didn't have the full horn section with Dr. John. So we get there, I've got Dr. John on piano, Van singing live, we're cutting the track, and Van hates the horn. That Van's guys couldn't play the horn chart because it was too complicated. So Van says, the horn chart's wrong. Max says, no, they're right. They get into an argument, they're swearing at each other. I'm in the middle of the two of them. These two icons, and they're swearing, and they're yelling at each other, 
and everybody just leaves. It all blew up. And that and it didn't get finished because of that. We literally because, never been words, finished. Never finished it. Van just like, because of that happened, no, not going to work on it. Everybody just walked out. They flew me to, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that was, that was a bit disappointing. But the day before that, Van phoned me and said, I want to take you to lunch, Bob. And we're like, okay. So we went for lunch at the, uh, the hotel right on the lake, just him and I and his, his, uh, day to day girl. And Van and I talked about music for three hours. And it was one of the highlights of my life. Highlights of my life. He talked about everybody. He talked about Winnipeg and he told me a funny story. I don't know if you can use it though. You can't use it because who are we going to piss off? Well, I guess, well, it's a funny story. Anyway, I'll let you say, but he told me, I told him about Burton Cummings and I said, Burton Cummings, you know, to me was a rock star. I said, he had a cape and Van said, well, I had a cape. And I'm going, what? He said, yeah, when I lived in LA, I got this girl to make me these custom clothes. And, you know, she made all these you know, things. And if you look at the, uh, what is it? The band video, uh, the live one, you know, um, right. Right. Last at Waltz. the Fillmore, right. The last right. Waltz, he's wearing a jumpsuit, <laughs> right. He's the best Which is, part you know, of the whole movie anyway. He's right. the best part of the movie, but so, and he goes, yeah, he said, I had a green Cape. She made me a green velvet Cape. She said, yeah. And he said, you know, I, you know, I go to the whiskey go, go all the time and, you know, I'd wear the Cape in my velvet clothes and, and he says, I love the whiskey. He says, I love the way that all the girls dance there because they, they just move their arms and stuff like that. I said, Van, you got to come to Maui because they still dance like that. You got to come. You know, the freak dancing. Anyway, so we talked about that. And, and he told many, many stories. Like just talked about music and where about PJ Proby. I didn't know about that. And we, uh, he just... You know, he told me the story about that. And he talked about Bruce because he had met Bruce. And Bruce is the biggest Van Morrison fan ever. Uh, so it was all, it was just like an amazing experience. Um, and so I was supposed to go back to mix it. And he calls me and he said, you got to come in and be here Monday. And I said, well, I'm just mixing this band called the Black Veil Brides. I didn't tell him I'm mixing a project. I, I can't come Monday, but I'll be there in a week click he hung up on me that was it because i said i couldn't come on monday that's that it, it for all time for all time <laughs> you know that's that is the story i know people work with them etc that they tell similar stories it's like everything's great it's over you don't know what happened that's it but i'm i'm happy i had the best like i said i was just in the presence of something one thing I did say, and this is really interesting. So I, I said, you know, because I went and saw a show, Bruce, and I went to see him before we went in the studio. And he played sax, right? And then I started putting together, and, and actually, you know, when you're mixing, you kind of have solo tracks, and you, and you kind of get in a kind of like a, a different feel of what people are doing. And I noticed that a lot of Vans, where he goes melod melodically, sound like sax parts. Like he's not doing singer stuff. He's doing other stuff. 
And so I said, so what came first for you, saxophone or vocals? And I said, because it sounds like your vocal parts are like sax parts. And he goes, he kind of smiled at me and he goes, yeah. He started on sax and then he went to vocals. And that's where he gets all his melodies. And to me, that freaked me out. Crazy. Okay. Uh, now, ultimately, Bruce manages Michael Bublé. You end up producing, and the records are very successful, but from a distance, someone would say, well, that's not your regular wheelhouse. Bruce has known me forever. I'm not talking, so, about, I'm not talking about getting the gig. You work with Metallica. This is the thing. So he suggested it to Michael. Michael goes, Metallica? <laughs> and he says, well, you, Bruce says, you don't understand. Bob started, he was recording orchestras when he was doing jingles at Little Mountain. We, you know, I mean, I made records a day, like, same with Bob Clearmount. We all came in, Chris Lord Algae, we all came from jingles. Like, that's making a record every day, a one-minute record, you know, and you do orchestras and stuff. He says, Bob knows how to do it. So, actually, Buble played Maui, and I went to see him, and so they played this song, and the producer that he was working said it was a shit song. And I said, it's not a shit song. It's a good song. And I said, but you need to re rewrite the bridge. Just this is where you should go. Rewrite the bridge. So Alan Chang, his MD, wrote the bridge. We went into Brian's studio. I got great musicians, Josh Freeze and guys from LA and some Vancouver guys that I know. And we cut the song live. We cut two songs. And it was like, it was easy because we did the pre-production. They changed it. We ran it a couple of times and cut it. And Michael loved it. That was everything. Okay. I only did one song. He just, you know, Michael went, okay, I get it. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, today's world is mostly a hip-hop pop world. You certainly, Buble's in his own lane, and rock doesn't have the presence. What do you think about today's scene, and to what degree does it intersect with your career and outlook? Yikes. What, what inspires me constantly is like if you if you pick out just a song that really hits you like circles by post malone okay so out of the blue that comes on and i went that's a great record okay that's not a rock record rock record that's kind of like it's just a great song the lyrics are great the feels great that's a great song that's what I can still do if that happens. I'm not going to go into the rap thing because I don't know it, but I can still make rec records with people that want to make records like that. And the great thing about the Post Malone is there's real musicians. You know, it's just not all, you know what I mean? There's guitars, there's vocals, and you can hear the work that was put into it. That's a great record. That keeps me inspired. Billie Eilish, too. Same thing. You hear the craft, how thing people are making great things you know what's the uh, the girl that put out the record that's very weird what's her name uh fiona <sighs> apple yes listen to the record there's four four tracks that are just great you know it's still inspire i don't know if i could do that but sure so that's what keeps me interested as long as i'm interested you know um yeah I mean, people still, the thing is, is that I think still people appreciate proper recording. And that may sound really strange, but there's a lot of good recordings that get away. Like, you know, 
Um, there's a lot of raw recordings that get away because it's a great song, but still people really appreciate like good sonics and good recording and not many people know how to do it. So maybe there's a place for me. Okay. But, uh, I'll use the vernacular. Does your dick still get hard? Are you still as excited? Because certainly once you pass 60, one's perspective tends to change. And, you know, you certainly can nail it. And there are, you know, certain people work forever in this business. But how do you get, can you get as excited as you used to be? And how do you get excited? I worked with a band called Classless Act. And I did it basically for nothing. And I worked with them and they were so excited about having great sounds and their, their songs being arranged. And I got excited. So yes, I still get excited about it. I just love making records. And until I can't, I'm going to keep doing it. And to just what like, degree are you a student of the game? What I mean by that is you wake up early, you work in the studio. Are you someone who is literally going on the services, Spotify, whatever, and checking all the new stuff? Do you listen to old stuff? You know, to what degree? You obviously know the limited number of mixers. But if we were to go through the hit records of today, whatever genre, are you keeping up with that or not? Basically, the stuff that rises the surface in my realm, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I, I buy iTunes. I still buy, you know, whatever. If I hear something, I'll buy it. I support musicians. I still do that. As insane as that sounds. But, um, yeah, people are still making great records. I just heard the new killer single, the new killers single. I like it. You could see that they did it. I'm asking a slightly different question, which is, how do you find it? You got to look. It's like shopping. You know, the, when I started, when, when I bought the MC5 album, Kick Out the Jams, at Hudson's Bay in Victoria, never heard the band. Bought it because the, I liked the album cover, right? Because I was searching for music, okay? I, I was there to buy Led Zeppelin One in truth. But I went to Hudson's Bay and I was going through records. Never heard of the MC5. I bought it because they had American flags draped on their amplifiers. And I thought, that is cool shit. Bought the record, went to school. My band learned out, kicked out the jams, right? We played it at a sock hop and we got banned from the school. That was when <laughs> it came out. Okay? So right now, I still search for inspiration. I really do. I see. You got to search it out. Yeah. Because you can't hear it on the radio. Drilling down. Can you tell us a little about your technique and how you search? Well, I've got kids. Okay. That definitely helps. You know, um, you know, like when you're in at the warehouse or when you're in Los Angeles, I listen to the radio. I listen to people tell me about stuff, you know, when I'm working, like it's less of it now. I'm not hearing so much right now. It's mainly from my kids. Or somebody will send me, listen to this. Um, or I search it out, the killers. I always buy the killers because I like them. And I'm glad that they put out a record. And the first single sounds great to me. And Lindsey Buckingham's on it. So I'm, you know, I'm in there just for that, you know. So, like I said, you got to search. you got to do the work. And if you do the work and people that, if you look at all the music that's released, it's hard to find something 
that nobody knows about. That's what worries me because there isn't, there isn't that, that thing that used to be. There is not the great guys that develop people. Like we don't have the John Hammonds. We don't have Amit. We don't have, you know, those guys helping us discover, you know. So we're kind of on our own. I was just going to say, by the way, I think Rick Rubin is a great record man. I think he stands with John Hammond and Ahmet and stuff. I really believe that's the guy he is. Well, he makes records in a, in a completely different way from most people. It's all very conceptual, trying to inspire the brains of the people. Exactly. And, but I think that's, he's so good at that. He's a great music guy like John Hammond, like he's one of the greats, Clive Davis and stuff. He's got vision and stuff. I thought I'd say that to you because I, I put him in that category. I admire the guy. Yeah. Did Did you watch the Beastie Boys movie? I did. And I saw that and I was shocked. I knew sort of about that, but that, that whole thing, what they did is just so bad. <laughs> right? It's just- But that's the business. It's cutthroat, man. But it's also funny, you know, knowing George Draculius, et cetera, the transition of Rick Rubin to the guru, you know, the quiet yes. guy, whatever, as opposed to in that movie, he's the guy who's right up front promoting, et cetera. I know. Well, people change. <laughs> yeah. No, anyway. I, I, listen, hopefully people do change. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your creative day, Bob. Always great to see you. And you, Bob. Love, love what you do. Keep doing it. Keep telling the truth. Thank you. Thanks so much. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.